you know, some do argue uh, for the best real estate in the market. It is now a rich person sport. And for anyone perhaps, um, you know, not playing at that league, you know, getting your hands on those type of assets is going to be very, very challenging. You've got to play in the dirt. Um, and so, I mean, it happened to me. I mean, the only way I've ended up with really A-grade uh, properties is I just traded in the dirt as much as I could until I could move up the ranks to much more A-grade assets in my portfolio. You can see some of the dirt I owned was absolute crud, right? Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, a code cracker. Yes, we're going to fix some financial inefficiencies in your world. I guarantee it. Uh, today, we're going to have the tax conversation, of course, uh, around this time of year. It is tax time. So I think it's uh, about time we talk about the old uh, dreaded tax discussion. But of course, real estate is one of the vehicles, very few vehicles in Australia, which is effective on reducing tax. And of course, uh, I teach plans when it comes to real estate investment. And one of those plans is, of course, to minimize tax. Tax uh, can be minimized in through real estate, and it's one of the greatest gifts real estate has to offer. So we're going to dig into that. If it's your first time tuning in, welcome aboard to the show. And of course, play the show in double speed. Uh, speed me up, get your life back. But as they say, folks, like wealth is just not about what you make. It's actually about what you keep. And of course, the tax system is quite often written for rich people to keep a lot of money and quite often misunderstood by poor people who don't take advantage of the system. And of course, real estate is just one of those vehicles whereby if you do own real estate because you are providing housing to the market, the Australian government gives you a bit of a tax break for doing so. And of course, for a lot of Australians, uh, one of their biggest financial inefficiencies in their life is actually just paying too much tax. And of course, buying real estate for a tax deduction is a benefit of being a property investor, not a principle. A principle of being a property investor, of course, is to go out there and make sure you buy a good, sound piece of real estate. But as a byproduct of that, if you do buy the right property in the real estate market, it can be quite tax effective. And of course, uh, we all can pay too much tax if we're not careful. And it's not about uh, not being part of the system and contributing. It's just for the risk you take as a, a property investor, there are some tax benefits. And of course, the easiest way to explain that is for most of us, we work five, sometimes even six days a week. Uh, we get up on a Monday, we fight the traffic, uh, we get to work, all of a sudden we're exchanging our time, our life, 
And we're hoping to get an exchange of that value and that value is usually exchanged through money. But the reality is most people do not get to keep the money they exchange their time for on a Monday. It goes to the tax office. The same unfolds on a Tuesday and for many people even into Wednesday. In fact, we call Wednesday hump day because of this particular situation. So real estate, if done right, if structured in the right way, can certainly help reduce your tax liabilities. It can help you reduce your tax rate and it can be quite effective in getting you to a place where you've got more tax that you pay coming back into your back pocket. Tax planning is what we're going to really discuss today and how it affects assets and also the types of assets out in the marketplace and how they can fundamentally affect your tax or cash flow position. Uh, I don't want it to be too complex, too hard. I'm not here to discuss the Uh, full ins and outs of uh, accounting. I am not an accountant. This is not uh, tax advice. This is simply some information from a property investor from one brother to another. uh, So you guys can start to learn little nuances and differences in the economy. Now, I teach seven plans like a acquisition growth plan, Uh, a rental growth plan, a tax minimization plan, a debt reduction plan, a wealth acceleration plan. Uh, I outsource to help people find a good financial plan. And so um, from a planning point of view, the idea of reducing tax is incredibly important for property investors to consider. And of course, I think, you know, quite often we can put ourselves in a position where we're just not capitalizing on, um, you know, enough revenue coming into our portfolio. And real estate allows for revenue to come in from the tax man. Uh, I personally am a value investor. I've mentioned that many times on this podcast. I like to buy real estate. I like to buy real estate, which is value orientated, where the rental return and the tax system sort of does the lion's share of the work, but also making sure I'm geared towards a capital growth property because at the end of the day, capital growth properties going to make you more money than certainly cash flow properties. So there is a bit of a difference out there in the marketplace. There is negatively geared properties, which can be suitable for many people if particularly they're paying way too much tax. A negatively geared property is a very simple formula. It means that you're losing money out of your back pocket after the rent and after tax is paid. And for many wealthy people making half a million dollars a year, they don't need the rent from a property to help their financial position. They don't even need the tax from a property to help their financial position because their wage is anchored and very heavy. It's it's a good level of income already. Of course, the polar opposite to that is people's perhaps uh, not making a huge wage 
And for many property investors, they like the idea that a property can produce enough revenue that it actually pays for its own bills, it pays for its own outgoings, it pays for the interest you're borrowing from the bank, and uh, creates a surplus of income that you get paid to own the real estate. So think of it that way. Some real estate in the marketplace will pay you to own it, which is quite incredible, right? We call that positive positive cash flow property. There is a nuance, a difference between positive cash flow properties and positively geared properties. Positively geared properties just fundamentally mean that they are uh, pre-tax negative But after you apply the tax relief the Australian government will apply to a real estate, they basically use the tax to become positive geared or positively geared. So uh, the rent and the um, tax deductions combined create extra cash flow. Positive cash flow is independent of the tax deductions. That's kind of a bonus on top of that. So I personally like um, to help investors be, you know, what we would refer to as positively or neutrally geared. In other words, the real estate itself um, gets taken care of when you do the mathematics of the rent and the mathematics of the tax deduction. I have been down the path of being a positive cash flow investor and, and I've certainly been down the path of being a negatively geared investor. And uh, along the way, it is quite nice to end up in a place where you're not having to worry about paying for more mortgages out of your back pocket. So a lot of people like the idea of buying positive cash flow properties. Now, I'm very open around the fact that uh, I invest a certain way. I like to buy real estate Uh, which is buy and hold. I also like to change the trajectory of that cash flow by using things like Airbnb, short stay mechanisms to increase the rental return to a positive geared or even positive cash flow state. I do that by manipulating the outcome of the real estate. But some people like to buy real estate, which is just set and forget, you get a tenant, that tenant is paying more rent than really what the debt is of the real estate. And in Australia's history, positive cash flow properties uh, have played a part. And you can go back really to the early 2000s and the idea of buying real estate to live off the income was a thing. We uh those of us around back in the day, you could go out to uh, little country towns, little rural centers and pick up a property pretty cheaply, but it would have a very, very good rental return when compared to the purchase price. Now, um, one easy way to think about a rental return is dollar per thousand. And, uh, you know, if you buy something for 
$500,000 and it's running for $500 a week, on average, um, that is around a 5% gross return. If you were buying something for $500,000 and the rent was $1,000 a week, um, the uh, that would be a 10% gross return. Then if you take out 30% cost to run the property, you're getting uh, you know, a very, very high rental return compared to the actual cost of the property. And that's how you end up in a positive cash flow place. Back in the day in 2000, um, you know, positive cash flow was a big thing. Um, I personally have invested and helped other people invest in strange little places back then because properties were so cheap. Like you could go to small rural town centers and pick up a property for $40,000 renting for $200 a week. Why was it so cheap? Well, I can tell you one of the big uh, interceptors wasn't really a thing. Uh, Real estate wasn't necessarily on the internet back then. And so the only way to discover uh, properties was actually physically to stumble across them driving through small regional town centers. And so what was happening back in the day is a lot of property investors, particularly from city centers, were discovering places in Australia that they'd never heard of, that uh, had huge rental returns when positioned against their value or their, their sale price. And so this idea of positive cash flow properties kind of sprung together inside of Australia. Now, of course, one of the greatest books ever written on real estate investment is by Robert Kiyosaki. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Obviously, in that book, uh, Robert Kiyosaki talks about the principle of going and finding real estate where you're getting paid to own it. And of course, if you can accelerate uh, your shopping and you can buy um you know, literally dozens of those type of properties, you can end up in a position where you've replaced your income from real estate. And uh, it certainly was a thing in the early 2000s. I certainly helped many people buy in rural towns, in country towns, in mining towns, uh, cheaper properties, which Um, really cost nothing, blocks of units. And uh, at around sort of just around about 2006, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. Really, the laggard investors got into these type of marketplaces and started to pay way too much for the underlying asset. So, Uh, I personally got out of trading positive cash flow properties and working on them and buying them myself in circa 2006, 2007. Um, And the real reason being was that properties which I was buying uh, for $45,000 all of a sudden had a price tag of Four hundred and five hundred and six hundred thousand dollars, and of course, that meant you could pick up a better asset and better underlying asset for 
um, a lot less in a city. So kind of for me, the year of positive cash flow properties has come and gone in Australia. But still today, many people like the idea of buying a very, very uh, rundown property, which has basic level of standards for living. The people who buy those properties don't like to upgrade them because the cost to upgrade them fundamentally diminishes their cash flow position and they rent them out. Um, So you buy a cheap property and you rent it out. Cheap properties are usually cheap for a reason. And again, like I've invested as a positive cash flow investor, but I knew what I was doing. I was buying positive cash flow properties. I wasn't expecting capital growth. Where it goes wrong for a lot of people, positive cash flow real estate, which I'm sure is still out there. Um, there are some places where you can go and look for them. Uh, I can give you some names if you like, and uh, you can go and search for your own positive cash flow property. But don't expect capital growth. And of course, the real way to create wealth, to buy a property which you pick up for half a meal, that becomes a meal, you know, 15 years, 16, 20 years from now, is to buy something which is growth orientated. And no matter what you do, um, from an income point of view, you are better off buying growth to begin with and circling back and then, uh, you know, activating cash flow. And that's how I do it today. And the reason I do it that way today is because I've learned a lot from obviously my personal experience in positive cash flow marketplaces. Now, today we're talking about tax, but the idea with positive cash flow marketplaces is they actually add to your taxable income because you're not losing money by owning the real estate. You're not negatively geared. You're actually making extra revenue. So let's say you uh, make $100,000 and you own a positive cash flow property and it's positive cash flow by $5,000 a year, all of a sudden you're making $105,000. And uh, again, one of the things you need to take into consideration with positive cash flow properties, if you are you know, working through uh, your dynamics of a job and you, you need to take note of the tax rates because, again, um, if you change the trajectory of your cash flow using positive cash flow, even things like Airbnb or uh, things like joint ventures and syndications, you may find yourself in a higher tax break, uh, tax uh, level, and of course, um, you've got to understand and compensate for that. But generally, if you're making money, you're paying tax. That's just the the brutal truth of it all. And of course, positive cash flow properties today, I think are better found in inner city locations where you've got executive rents and also the idea of Airbnb properties. Of course, for many uh, wealthier Australians, they do positive cash flow strategies through commercial real estate, which is in its own kind of section in the market because a lot of nuances when it comes to commercial, 
The loan to value ratios are very different to residential. You can get margin caught on commercial real estate. Um, there's obviously the office market. There's the retail market. There's the industrial market. There's all sorts of um, tricks and, and so forth inside commercial. I'll come back and talk about commercial one day. But one of the big advantages of commercial properties is the tenants typically can quite often be paying the outgoings. And of course, one of the best ways just to get a rental return today, particularly if you want to be uh, neutrally geared or positively geared, in other words, just get the tax man and um, the renter to do a line share of the work is just popular properties in popular suburbs. They tend to um, also be very good rental properties at a basic level. So uh, we've got to weigh it up, right? Do we want more growth? Do we want more cash flow? What's better for us? Um, where do we find ourselves? And that's where I kind of sit in the middle. We want good growth, but we kind of want real estate that we can also uh, own, which is not um, going to dig into our back pocket too much, right? Um, and of course, interest rates change and uh, sometimes there will be a period where you've got to dig into your own back pocket, but that may be like two years out of 10. What I'm talking about is you don't want to dig into your back pocket 10 years out of 10. I mean, that could be uh, once you calculate that and subtract it off any capital growth, it's obviously um, you know, a, a, a mathematical equation behind that. So um, positive cash flow property is a thing, right? And you can still buy positive cash flow properties. Um, uh, I owned a couple of positive cash flow properties until I traded up. I used them as trading um, fodder, if you like, to end up buying some much better higher growing properties for my portfolio. But interesting enough, um, I guess, you know, there's there's a property which I purchased. Um, I mean, you can look up the property. It's in Moree. I bought it for $140,000 in 2006. Today, the valuation of that property in 2022 basically 15, 16 years later, is $150,000. So that is a positive cash flow property. I bought it for 140. Uh, 15, 16 years later, it's worth 150. That property though, at 140, was renting for $300 a week. $300 a week. So after my outgoings and costs, I was getting a can of Coke to buy the property. Now, that's just one example of positive cash flow properties. As you can see, it has not worked out. It was a dud investment and I actually sold it, you know, some seven years ago. But uh, what, why I want to share that is like the same time, same period, I bought a capital growth property whereby it was positively geared, not positive cash flow in, uh, you know, a Sydney suburb, in a ring suburb. And, you know, the, the capital growth on that property, which I picked up for 415, 
It's now uh, closer to one and a, uh, one million and fifty, right? So it's gone up six hundred and fifteen thousand, doubled in value. Um, well and truly, uh, huge amounts of wealth in that asset. So the decisions you make are critical, right? Like if I just went down the road of continuing to buy um, uh, positive cash flow properties and I stopped in 2006 seeing the writing on the wall, um, this was the last positive cash flow property I bought and I probably held it too long. Um, I ended up um, just holding on to it because it wasn't annoying me, but um you know, when the, uh, what was it, the Royal Commission happened into lending and APRA, you know, stopped with uh, the idea that, you know, people who own too many properties are just never going to be able to buy more properties. I dumped it. And you can see that in two, I dumped it in 2016. But the reason I share that story is, Positive cash flow properties are a bit of, in my opinion, today, they can be fool's gold. They can be fool's gold. Like you want to buy the growth first. You want the growth in your portfolio. So, And even if you go negative, it's probably better. You want to get the growth. Then you can buy the cash flow. And my strategy today is you buy the growth. You change the trajectory of the cash flow. You can do that in two ways. You can uh, do things like Airbnb and get a huge rental return or you can do things like uh, equity arbitrage where you pull equity out, pay for it, you rent the equity off the bank, you invest the equity in the share market or you invest the equity in joint ventures, which is just my preference, right? So that's a better way to create a dividend. Now, uh, I mean, along those lines, I mean, I just brokered a deal just last week, it's a, it's an 11% gross return of a rental property uh, as a Airbnb, right? Uh, very good place, very nice area um, to own the real estate. And it's not based around uh, uh, positive cash flow properties. The reason a lot of properties are positive cash flow is the area has never seen capital growth, never seen capital growth. Uh, places sometimes are cheap for a reason uh, because they're cheap. Um, you know, they're just, there's really no such thing as a cheap, high growing property. And so positive real estate is based on cheap real estate. It's not high growing and it's basically underperforming. And ever since it's been created, it's been going backwards in value. So today, you can, I mean, you can go to places like Cobar uh, in New South Wales. You can pick up a property today, a three-bedroom house for 160 grand. Uh, you could go to Petersburg in South Australia. There's houses there for 69,000. Knock yourself out. Uh, you could go to Tara, Queensland. Some lovely houses for $72,000. How about uh, Rosebury, Tasmania? You can pick yourself up for uh, some stock around... $100,000. And of course, um, one place which is described as a moonscape desert, Queenstown, New Zealand, is uh, you can pick up a house there for around $100,000, probably renting for $220 a week. 
Generally, the tenants are kind of people on witness protection programs and so forth, hiding out, um, Gopniks, witness protection people. Um, or in Queenstown's taste, uh, case, uh, quite often, uh, you know, people mistakenly think they're booking Queenstown, New Zealand, and they're booking Queenstown, Tasmania on Airbnb. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just not a good place. Uh, Dysart... Uh, in uh, which is primarily leasehold in middle Queensland. I mean, these are places where you can get a huge rental return, um, but you're never going to get capital growth. And, you know, the gross rental returns can quite often be around 10%. So uh, property bargains or property blunders. I would probably put it in the property blunder place. Now, remember, you've got income tax. One of the best ways to accelerate uh, paying less tax is to do gearing. And you can go into positive gearing or negative gearing. Negative gearing, as I alluded to, just means you're basically um, losing money. Your property's making a loss. Uh, The idea of buying a property on purpose to make a loss doesn't make sense to me. But uh, certainly the idea of just choosing a really good property and if it happen to, happens to be in a year where it's, it's uh, negative cash flow, um, but the long-term rental proposition and the future rental proposition is going to turn it at positive cash flow or positively geared, then that makes sense to me. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. So with real estate, <clears throat> and today's show is about tax, but... It's also about asset allocation because it has a lot to do with the tax situations. Obviously, if you're going to buy positive cash flow properties, it's going to add to your income tax. But for most people, that will never be the case. Most people will never end up, um, you know, in that situation. So uh, income tax can be reduced by buying a investment property, which is typically found in an urban area. But with real estate, we've got other taxes. We've got stamp duty, we've got land tax, and of course, the dreaded capital gains tax, which are all very, very annoying. When it comes to just understanding your, um, I guess, responsibilities as a property investor, you've got to understand what kind of structures you're going to run as a property investor. And I think for a lot of Australians, their accountants actually bamboozle them and set them up with unnecessarily uh, too many structures that are just not necessary for the average investor. Now, a lot of accountants will um, love the principle of asset protection, so they'll tell you, You've got to set up, um, you know, a, a, a trust structure, a company trust structure to protect you from being sued one day, and they will sell you this vehicle. And again, like I think for the average person who just goes to work, like the odds of being sued at work is very, very minimal unless you're like a business owner and you've got um, lots of different layers. You probably do not need in Australia, and this is not tax advice, 
This is just insider advice as to what accountants do. You probably just need to buy a property in your own name or you and your partner's name and use the deductions that you get in your own name rather than using complicated trust structures. Accountants love selling structures because they get uh, annuity or annual fees from those structures. So they'll uh, quite often overcomplicate property investment for people because they are financially trying to sell you a product. And, um, you know, I see all the time property investors who are just looking to buy one or two properties, um, you know, having these really complicated structures that their accountant set up. And uh, some of the complicated instructions, uh, Uh, structures, almost even the banks don't even want to go near them because they're just way too complicated. At the end of the day, if you go to work as an Australian PAYG uh, tax uh, payer, you uh, can claim some tax from property. That's that's as simple as it needs to be. So I personally think Uh, Put some properties in your own name. Eliminate your tax if you can, Um, unless you're in a very volatile kind of industry. But I personally know no one who has been sued um, because they're, I don't know, like a robber broke into... I mean, you go and listen to these accountants and some of them are like, yeah, you know, this person had a hose in the front yard and you know, the postman came and tripped over the hose in the front yard and, you know, it was a terrible situation and, you know, uh, the property investor got sued and lost everything. And, and and I just don't know if that's actually a thing, right? Like I've never, ever seen this before. I've been involved in property for like 30 years, 10,000 people I've, I've um, seen through those years do property deals and and really no one has got sued for uh you know basic level providing you know services inside of property like i don't know one person i mean maybe you do um this is not tax advice like again if you're in a complicated industry uh maybe a highly litigious industry you maybe you're a uh, you know, a, a contractor or something where you're, you know, what you do is on the line, you can certainly asset protect and put your real estate in different structures. But of course, uh, I think for most people, it's probably easier just to pay less tax by owning it in your own name and, um, you know, just have regular insurance like everyone else, right? So obviously, depreciation is a thing inside of Australian real estate. If you buy new properties, you can fully depreciate both the building and the chattels or the inclusions inside the property. If you buy a property which is uh, built before 1987, you can't depreciate anything. If you buy a property which is um, basically built after 1987, like 1988, 1989, um, you can get 
building depreciation but not shadow depreciation or inclusions depreciation unless the property is new. And of course, um, depreciation schedules are some things that quite often property investors forget about. It's really simple. What you do when you buy a property, you order a depreciation schedule from great companies. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, go to depreciator.com.au. They'll put together a depreciation schedule for you in no time. You give that depreciation schedule to your accountant and your accountant, when they do your tax return, they work out how much your assets or your asset, your building and your chattels have lost in value and account for that loss against your basically uh, income tax level. And so as we know, land depreciates, buildings depreciate. And so if you've got some depreciation allowances in your building um, and your inclusions, you can use them tax effectively. And so again, uh, the best way to do that in my view is to gear it. In other words, we still want a good rental return, but if we've got some equally some good tax deductions, we're not going to pull a lot of money out of our own back pocket because we're going to be geared right. And of course, um, you know, uh, that has to mirror up with your tax rate, right? And of course, Australia's tax rates moving around a bit. I think there's some a few things on the cards at the moment, but uh, basically, uh, if you earn, say, anywhere between $45,000 and $120,000, you're generally paying around 32% tax. If you're earning over $120,000, more up between one twenty and one eighty, dollars paying around 37% tax. And of course, if you're over $180,000 in personal earnings, you're paying around $0.45 cents in the dollar tax. Then we've also got your 2% Medicare levy. So it's a lot of tax flying out of the system. Remember, you wake up on a Monday, you go to work, you exchange your time for money. For most Australians, they do not own their Monday. Most Australians do not own their Monday nor their Tuesday. And for many even wealthier people earning over $180,000, they do not own their Wednesday. The reason they don't own their Monday, their Tuesday or their Wednesday is they don't have anything to lower their taxable income rate. And real estate allows you to do that. That is one of the special things about property is that your expenses and your depreciation can quite often be part of your tax deduction profile. So obviously, when it comes to property, you've got revenue, you've got the revenue side of the account ledger, rental income, um, any other sort of forms of income you're charging for, expenses that you're getting, um, government rebates, things like that. Then you've got your expenses, which is obviously your interests, uh, obviously, you know, not your principal, but your interests your property management fees, um, your repairs and maintenance if they're basically expenses, your insurances, any sort of legal costs perhaps you've you've incurred, 
Um, and so you can claim this kind of stuff against your um, your uh, your income profile. So this is again, we've explained positively geared properties. Why people, particularly who are earning one hundred eighty thousand dollars or above, love negatively geared properties is they're paying forty five cents in the dollar. So they want to reduce themselves down to a lower, uh, basically, tax rate. And so if you've got high interest costs on an investment property and you're losing money, it can push you into a lower tax rate, which fundamentally gives you an overall better balanced position. So for a lot of wealthy people, they don't need positively geared properties and they don't need... Um, certainly don't need positive cash flow properties in uh, like my weird um, shitty property in Moree, right? So they need quite often negatively geared properties. And this is kind of the advantage the wealthier have at the moment in Australian real estate. Obviously with the high cost of properties in general, if you can buy uh, as a wealthier person into an A-grade suburb, A-grade a-grade street, A-grade dwelling, um, A-grade location, no supply ever coming, character property, typically you're going to get richer because uh, the mere average person just cannot follow that strategy. And, you know, some do argue uh, for the best real estate in the market it is now a rich person sport and for anyone perhaps, um, you know, not playing at that league, you know, getting your hands on those type of assets is going to be very, very challenging. You've got to play in the dirt. Um, and so, I mean, it happened to me. I mean, the only way I've ended up with really A-grade uh, properties is I just traded in the dirt as much as I could until I could move up the ranks to much more A-grade assets in my portfolio. You can see some of the dirt I owned was absolute crud, right? So um, obviously when it comes to tax repairs and capital improvements, um, obviously you've got to be very, very careful there that you're not um, repairing something beyond its original state because that will become a capital cost. Um, And so again, like you, you may not be able to claim that in your tax return because you've kind of improved the property beyond its um, original character. And so capital costs are a thing. Uh, There's nothing wrong with capital gross. It can actually help you later if you ever sell your property that you've, um, you know, it, it can be offset against some of the capital gain potentially that you may end up paying if you do sell properties. So uh, when it comes to tax planning, you should probably go see an accountant. And again, um, if you need need someone to work with at a property-based level, you're more than welcome to um, let me know and I'll put you in touch with some people. But you've, uh, you know, you've, you can work with a tax planning person to make sure you're uh, working out when you're going to play capital gains tax, talk to them about, you know, superannuation, talk to them about critical timing for expenses, 
what kind of deductibilities you can get from um, from property as an investment. Today is just a briefing. I just want to give you a briefing on how it all kind of works and then you can go and see um, a tax accountant and make sure you're doing this perfectly. If you don't have one, just reach out to me and I'll put you in touch with someone so you can, um, yeah, you know, make sure you've got a tax-orientated property accountant. See, this is the other thing with real estate. Most accountants are actually not property investors and have no idea about property. And so you think logically an accountant would understand real estate, but that's not the case. Like any professional, they can be very good at what they do, understanding tax regulations, laws, um, and so forth. But do they know real estate? Not necessarily. So you probably want to make sure when you're interviewing an accountant that they have some broad understanding of the property market. Otherwise, they can quite often not understand what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to do, what part of your journey you're on, how far you're into your roadmap of your goals. Um, And so you've just got to make sure you're planning to set yourself up with an A-grade team if you can and of course, um, other taxes, I mean, real estate is just so taxed, it's it's beyond belief. And, you know, the idea of necessarily getting rid of uh, gearing, if you like, which, you know, obviously many politicians have talked about, um, makes no sense to me because real estate is just so taxed. Like you think about a developer who has to buy a site then, you know, there's tax on that, then there's land tax, then there's GST, then there's marginal tax, then there's, uh, you know, there's just taxes, 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 then there's council taxes, then they sell the property, there's stamp duty is is created and paid and, and then tax, 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 tax. So the fact that you can claim some tax back from real estate, well, of course you should, because it's quite heavily taxed. And of course, one of the most irritating taxes for property investors, which today, you know, government and policymakers are talking about, well, do we just soften stamp duty tax to uh, a lower amount to allow more people the ability to buy real estate because it becomes such a barrier to entry because stamp duty is expensive, right? It can be, um, you know, uh, several thousands, uh, tens of thousands of dollars for uh for people to buy real estate and again like just you know a barrier for many people particularly starting out um because it is a quite a sizable amount of money i personally like stamp duty the reason i do is it's kind of like you know kissing the ring finger of uh of the overlord and again like australia's revenue for the public service is very much directed from stamp duty like the amount of money state governments make and territory governments make out of stamp duty is mind-blowing and when you look at some of the biggest workforces inside of australia today like they are public servants so the fact that the government kind of needs people to buy real estate 
um, you know, it creates this big rock effect, which I've talked about before. It's almost like a stabilizer. If people weren't buying real estate, there's no tax revenue. So public servants fundamentally could be on the chopping block. And that for public servants would not be fun. So again, like there's this whole uh, system, which is all interconnected. Then, of course, you got land tax, and land tax in its own right is one of these tricky ones to navigate around. One of the best ways to not pay land tax is to buy properties in different states because land tax is a state-based tax. I believe the Queensland government is bringing bringing in a threshold where they consider your assets owned in other states and apply it to Queensland thresholds. So other than Queensland, owning real estate in other marketplaces is a very good way to fundamentally not pay land tax. And of course, uh, generally land tax is based on the, the unimproved land value by the valuer general. So it's quite often, um, you know, again, like a Uh, much lower than you possibly think. So quite often when we think about real estate as human beings, you know, we might have a property worth a million dollars. We then don't break it down into, well, what's the land value of that? And what's the asset value of that? Going a step further, the land or the value of general generally um, values land much lower than, for example, the a market would value the land at. So let's say in that example, it's a million dollar property, uh, $400,000 of it is the asset, $600,000 of it is the land. The valuer general may only see that land being worth $300,000 and so um, will charge taxes on that. So again, it um, it's a weird science. Uh, it's just the way it is. Um, but uh, there are thresholds. And so in New South Wales, um, the tax-free threshold is for an investor, $734,000. I believe in Queensland, it's around $600,000. South Australia, around $450,000. Tasmania, $25,000. Victoria, um, you do have land tax above $250,000. And Western Australia, land tax above, um, again, $300,000. So uh, it's the valuer general gen, general's um, opinion of of, uh, of of the land value, basically. And so, um, yeah, if you own properties in a trust um, in certain cities, in certain places, uh, certain states, you'll pay um, a surcharge. So, for example, I own some real estate in a trust because set up as a, a bit of a family structure. Um, it In New South Wales, I pay land tax. In um, some other states, you would not um, necessarily pay land tax owning a property in a uh, trust structure. So it's a little bit complicated. Um, again, if you want to own 20 properties, you probably need to sit down and map something out with someone particularly around how land tax works because it is an annoying uh, it is an annoying surcharge 
and I certainly pay it on um, a property and it's it's not cheap. It's $12,500. So yeah, that property can sustain it, but it is not cheap. So again, um, you know, one of the best ways to avoid it is to um, is to basically make sure that you're across the tax-free threshold. And of course, um, sometimes if you are building a portfolio in one place, you know, may 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 actually make more financial cash flow sense to go. Well, I might buy a house uh, and then I might buy a townhouse because it's got less land value and then maybe an apartment and you may be able to own uh, all three properties but still be be below the land tax threshold um, so you're not, you know, having to fork out five grand, six grand a year just in land tax costs. But it does, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if your land value has surpassed the tax-free threshold and you've owned it for 15, 20, 25 years, it's probably a good thing because now you've made so much money that you're just, you're just across what's going on, right? You, you know, um, you know, I see this all the time, you know, uh, I own a property, it's gone up like a million bucks. Um, I got a, uh, a bill to, it's in a strata scheme and I got a bill for $5,000 to put into the scheme to improve some of the capital works. Um, and it's like, whatever, man, it's gone up a million bucks. Like, yeah, here's five grand, no worries. The other person though, who just bought it like last week is all like stressed at the meeting. I only just bought the property now, it's $5,000 going up like they're like a cat on a hot tin roof. And again, I always say this, I mean, the longer you own real estate, the more chilled out you become about the whole process. When you're just getting into it, everything feels like you're just getting um, beaten around a little bit, right? So tax-free thresholds, land tax, there is, it is a state-generated thing. Um, if you want to minimize that, you know, um, you know, I always sort of teach people, you know, you're probably as a property investor, you know, do the five cities plan, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, like these are great places to own real estate. And what I love about that, they tend to move differently in normal cycle periods where, you know, one's going to be outperforming the other. And and you're always, you know, you tend to always have one city doing better than the other. And that's probably the case today. You know, Brisbane's doing better than Sydney right now at the time of recording. That that's not always going to be the case, but it's just the way it way it works, right? The way it works. So, um, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the other tax which you need to be mindful of is capital gains tax. And again, like Australian real estate's just built into the concept. Like we all get it, um, you know. By the way, um, you know, land tax uh, for people who own their own home, um, you know, isn't a thing. It's generally for investors. And so one of the most tax efficient vehicles, by the way, of owning real estate is buying your PPR because your PPR uh, generally doesn't have land tax nor capital gains tax. However, investment properties do. And so... um, you know, this is why some investors own properties in company and trust structures is because they are potentially going to sell the property one day and are playing a game sometimes against um, 
capital gains tax because they will pay more a company rate tax. So capital gains tax, um, there is a basically a 50% CGT concession or discount. So if you own real estate and you basically own it longer than 12 months, uh, you basically get a 50% deduction on any future capital gains tax. If you own real estate for two weeks, two months, six months, nine months, you're going to pay a lot of capital gains tax if indeed you make a capital gain, which, you know, is is usually unlikely, but not impossible inside of real estate. Um, when you buy your PPR, you get six-year capital gains uh, exemption. And then, um, you know, if you move out and turn it into investment property, you've kind of got this kind of six-year rule, right? So um, just bear that in mind. If you do turn your principal place of residence into a investment property, which a lot of people do, um, eventually you're going to have a proportion of that on capital gains tax, right? And uh, inside of superannuation, again, there's probably, there's also different um, capital gains rules. It's actually quite effective inside of superannuation to do uh, your properties as a, they have a different rate of capital gains. So superannuation funds pay a lot less in capital gains tax. Um, And that makes a lot of sense. Like if you're buying real estate and it's your pension retirement inside of a super fund or, or, or another asset class, you know, you don't want this heavy gain. I mean, what's the point? It's your pension, right? So um, yeah. So some, some pretty cool um, things you need to kind of understand when it comes to, to real estate. Obviously, I think from an asset protection point of view, insurance first um, is is really the best way to go. Make sure you look after, you know, mitigating if you're PAYG, your own personal tax, um, and just work out whether you want to be positive cash flow, uh, positively geared, uh, neutrally geared, or if you're really loaded, um, negatively geared. And, uh, you know, even if you're positively geared, you're going to, um, you're going to, you're, you're still negatively geared. You're just getting cash flow back from, um, your property investment from a tax point of view. I think that's one of the best ways to place, uh, place your portfolio. Hey, uh, I hope that was helpful. I hope you've picked up some tips. That was not tax advice. Go and get some, reach out to me if you need some help with that. All right, folks, I'll catch you later on another episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.